Well, uh, good morning. This is a little different, a little weird. Um, you've probably never seen me quite as big as this before. Um, you probably count every little grey hair in my beard here. Um, so good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry that we're not here in actual uh, in the flesh this morning. Um, I'm sure you've heard from Stephen by now. Bernice came back from Joburg Sheets and obviously has come into contact, contact with someone who had the dreaded disease. Um, and so when she got home on Friday, she was feeling a little sore, a little, little bit of a sore throat. Um, didn't really think anything of it, but on Saturday morning we thought, well, we better just be responsible. We went for a test and she's come back positive. And what that means, of course, is that I have to isolate now for the next 10 days as well. So. Here's hoping that I don't get it, um, but, well, who knows? We'll just have to play that one by ear and see how the week goes. Good thing is that, that these star children were both, have both been house-sitting this weekend, um, and so they have managed to avoid us. Isn't that great? Um, so there you go. I'm sure you've also heard all the bits and pieces that we need to know for the coming couple of weeks, that uh, it sounds like the pensioners', pensioners Christmas tea that we were going to do has been cancelled because you can't come to our house because you'll all get sick. Um, and um, But the carols at the moment are going ahead next Sunday evening at the Methodist Church, 5 o'clock, bring a picnic. And then, of course, our Christmas Day service will be on Saturday the 25th, half an hour earlier, 8.30 in the morning. Um, so come along to that, bring your friends and family, and we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus together. And then, just so that you know, Sunday the 26th, Boxing Day, there won't be a church service. It just seems a little silly to, to have church twice um, right after each other. We're going to celebrate Christmas together and then we'll have the, the next day, Sunday, as a, just some time with your family. Now, last week, I'm afraid I failed. I failed you. I kind of messed up. I didn't give you all the details that I should have done. Remember, we were talking about dragons, and I, I told you last week that the dragon is a major part of the Christmas story. But to be honest, I don't quite get around to telling you why I said that. And you all, like sheep, just nodded and um, assumed that your pastor was correct. So I'm going to just read from Revelation 12 this morning, uh, initially, just to let you know why it is that we're doing this uh, over the next couple of weeks. Revelation 12, the first couple of verses just says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars in her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her. Um, I think we kind of get the basics of that, right? That uh, surely on one level the woman is Mary, uh, the child to be born obviously is Jesus, and the dragon is waiting to devour him. And so that's kind of why we're looking at the dragon over these next few weeks leading up to Christmas. And uh, on Christmas morning, my intention is for us to actually look at that passage properly. Um, but um, for now, what I've managed to get for you is some actual footage of a dragon 
from a documentary <laughs> that I recently watched. Unfortunately, if you're watching this online, um, I'm pretty sure that Facebook will edit this bit out because, well, copyright violations and so on. But let's just be terrified for a moment by the dragon. You are being used, thief in the shadows. You are only ever a means to an end. The coward, Oakenshield, has weighed the value of your life and found it worth nothing. No. No, you're lying. What did he promise you? A share of the treasure? As if it was his to give. I will not part with a single coin. Not one piece of it. My teeth are swords. My claws are spears. My wings are a hurricane. So it is true. The black arrow found its mark. What did you say? Uh, I, I was just saying, your reputation precedes you, oh Smaug the. Tyrannical. Truly, you have no equal on this earth. I am almost tempted to let you take it. If only to see Oakenshield suffer. Watch it destroy him. Watch it corrupt his heart and drive him mad. But I think not. I think our little game ends here. So tell me, thief, how do you choose to die? <laughs> So there we go. I hope that didn't frighten you too much. Last week we saw that the old serpent, the dragon, in the garden, and we found that his intention is to lead us astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. This morning we're going to look at another very old, very ancient document, another old story of the dragon. We're going to turn to the book of Job. Now, the story of Job takes place at around about the same time as the story of Abraham. And so this is, we're talking about a very, very long time ago. And some of you know the story, um, and, and you're probably immediately thinking, oh, we're going to read Job chapter 1. That's the moment when, when Satan appears before the throne of God to accuse God and to try and uh, get to Job, and, say, and, and, to, and where he says, I'm, I'll get Job to curse you. But we're not going to go to Job chapter 1. In fact, we're going to the very end of the book of Job. We're going to read Job 41. So if you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn there, um, let me read the story right at the end of Job. Job 41. God is speaking at the moment. And he is speaking to Job. Listen to the words that God gives to Job. 
Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fishhook? Or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who is a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together, each so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. He, his snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him like a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Job, I have a fly buzzing, <laughs> a mini Leviathan, annoying. So Job starts, the, the book of Job starts with this counsel before God. And all sorts of heavenly beings appear in the presence of God. And the Satan appears. And notice it's the Satan. It's a title, not a name. Uh, he loses the the in the New Testament. But the Satan appears before God. And Satan just means accuser. And so that's what happens. The accuser appears before God to accuse Job, to accuse the saints. It's, what's the it's what the devil's always done. It's what he's been doing ever since then. He continues to accuse the saints. And so we see him then at work. Um, seeking to get Job to curse God uh, in the opening chapters of the book, the first two chapters, two, first two and a half chapters, where, where Job loses his family, he loses his health, he loses his, his vast wealth, he loses it all, his wife leaves him, and then, strangely, the accuser seems to vanish from the pages. 
Now, Job ends up having a few friends come round, and they say to him, look, Job, you're obviously a bad guy. That's why all these bad things have happened to you, because bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people, right? Makes sense. And Job says, but no, I I'm not. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good guy. I've been okay. And then Job says, if only God would step out. If only God would step forward, if only God would come down, I would question God. I'd put God in the dock and I'd challenge him because what's happened to me is not fair. It's not right. It's not just. And that's basically the story for 30 chapters. Three friends arguing with Job saying, you're bad. Job saying, I'm not. Come on, God, give me a chance. Give me a break. And then right at the end, in the, the, the last couple of chapters, a fourth friend steps in, a young guy, and he says, listen, Job, you're kind of right, but kind of wrong. You, you're right in saying that your friends are wrong, because they are wrong. Um, bad things don't happen to bad thing, people. Good things don't happen to good people. That's not how the universe works. But Job, actually, let's be honest, you're not as good as you think you are. Um, there is still some sin in you, and you can't challenge God. It's not up to you to question God and call God to give account. God, God does what he wills. And it's at that point that God makes his appearance in the book in about chapter 37 or 38. And we have five chapters of God speaking to Job. It is, in the Bible, the longest monologue by God, right? You know what a monologue is? It's a speech by one person where no one else interferes or interrupts. So the longest monologue in the Bible, the longest time where God actually verbally speaks. And God says, right, Job, I'm not the one that's in the dock. You are. We're going to put you in the dock and we're going to question you because you can't question me. And God says, let, let, let's ask some questions here, Job, because you think, seem to think that you can run the universe better than I can. Can you make the sun get up each day? Do you know what to do with Pleiades? Do you know the names of all the stars? Because I do. Any idea what to do with the ostrich? <laughs> Beautiful plumage, but stupid as a, well, as an ostrich, I guess. Right? And Job, of course, is speechless. He can't answer God. And Job actually says, he, he, he butts in at one point and says, I'm just going to be silent. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea, Job. Just, just be silent. So, so God asks him all these questions about running and ruling the physical universe that Job has no chance of. But Job, or God gets to chapter 40 then, and, and, and the, the questioning changes slightly. And God says, let's move on from you ruling the physical universe. Job, can you, can you rule the moral universe? Do you think you can sort this out? Do you think if you shout loud enough, the bad guys will stop being bad? Do you think you can control that? Can you? Do you want to judge the world? Do you? Do you? It's almost like God says, "Do you want my robe and my wig? Do you want to sit and be judge and and fi fix the problem of evil in this world?" And then God says, in the midst of that kind of question, he says, now let me ask you about a guy called Behemoth, which we didn't read about. Behemoth appears in chapter 40. Let me ask you about Behemoth, this m massive monster that just eats and eats and eats and is never satisfied. And then what we've just read, how about Leviathan, Job? Can you, can you do anything with Leviathan? And you've got to wonder, what is Behemoth and Leviathan got to do with the question of moral justice in the universe? Why are these two creatures in this part of God's debate and not earlier when God is speaking about ostriches and oxes and other things of the physical universe? Why do they appear now when God is asking questions about the moral universe and about justice? Why do they hear when God is wanting to deal with Job and the problem of evil? Now, having read, having just listened to this long description of this 
creature, you've just got to ask the question, right? What is Leviathan? What on earth is it? That's our first big question to deal with today. What is Leviathan? You may have heard the name or the phrase or the word or whatever it is in, in, in the Bible every now and then at some point um, because it appears here and there. But what is Leviathan? Here's what one commentator writes. He says, the Leviathan has been thought to be a dolphin, a tunny fish. I have no idea what a tunny fish is or even a whale. But the general view is that it is a crocodile. Now, I've just got to say, I don't even think that dearly departed Steve Irwin ever came across a crocodile that acted and behaved and looked like this. And to be honest, why on earth would God want to uh, have 34 verses to show that God is more powerful than what is basically a suitcase with legs? Right, because what else do you do with the crocodile? Right, turn to a handbag. Uh, I mean, isn't that just stating the absolute obvious? Of course God's bigger than a crocodile. So why on earth should Job be impressed by this? I mean, to be honest, I've eaten crocodile. And not only did I eat crocodile, I ate crocodile on a stick. And I ate that crocodile on a stick while I was sitting in a crocodile enclosure with the crocodile's brother, friend, mother, whoever, I don't know, sitting across the way from me, watching me. I sat and ate a crocodile next to a crocodile. Um, if I can do that, I'm not quite sure what the big deal is with God being, oh, I'm in charge of the crocodiles. I was going to say, crocodile tastes like chicken. Beyond all that, of course, the description that we read, surely it, it exceeds uh, any living creature known to man, right? This is, this is not a normal average creature that we're reading about. This is a, a monster of mythic proportions. So, so then what is it then? Well, some people have suggested that maybe it's a dinosaur and that this passage proves that dinosaurs walked amongst people and that Job lived in a time when dinosaurs wandered the earth. And I just got to say, I'm not convinced about that either. Partly because of the fire breathing thing. That, that just doesn't quite add up. I don't know if dinosaurs actually breathe fire. Here's what we're going to do. Let's use the Bible to help us interpret the Bible instead of allowing our imaginations to run wild as we try and figure out what the Bible is talking about. And that's always the most helpful approach. Far too often people read something in the Bible and they let their imaginations go instead of going, well, what else does the Bible say about this particular issue? So where else do we find Leviathan in the scriptures? And Leviathan appears a few times. Uh, one of the first time, well, one thing to do is to see where else in the book of Job the Leviathan appears, and he appears in chapter 3. So Job, uh, Satan disappears in chapter 2, and then in Job chapter 3, Job is all grim and miserable, and um, life is terrible, and he's sitting on an ash heap, and Job says this, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Why did I not perish at birth? Why did I not die as I came from the womb? Now again, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's like, may the people who raise up curses and, and the people who dabble in, in dark arts rouse a crocodile. That, that doesn't make sense at all, does it? And so what Job is saying here, he has, the people who curse days, the, the, the spiritists, the necromancers, whatever you call them, um, they're the ones who are going to rouse the Leviathan. And, and Job associates Leviathan then with curses and with darkness and with death. That's the connection, right? So here's this monster that is linked with death, this kind of grim reaper kind of figure we're talking about. 
Now, here's something you're going to just have to trust me on. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read about something called Rahab, and Rahab seems to be pretty much the same monster, just a different name. They inhabit the same realms, we'll see in a moment. It's just kind of a, a slightly different name given to the same beast. So in chapter 9, verse 13, we see that Rahab, uh, the alternate name for Leviathan, stands with a whole army at his disposal. In chapter 9, uh, verse 13, God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab are cowed at God's feet. Right. So Rahab has cohorts, uh, an army at, at his command. And what does God do? God has them cowed at his feet. This is a monster that God does battle with and that God subdues. As, as, as the verse goes on, um, sorry, uh, in, in chapter 26, later on in, in, in the book of Job, God does, again, does battle with Rahab. And then listen to this. The pillars of the heavens quake. They are aghast at his rebuke. By his power, he churns up the sea. By his wisdom, he cuts Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. Now that word gliding serpent in verse, verse 13 of chapter 26 is this word Nahash. Remember that from last week? It's the name given to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Right? So here we have a being which brings about death, which has an army of helpers, which appears in the form of a wily serpent. But Rahab, the sea monster, appears also in Psalm 74, where it says, But you, O God, my king from of old, you bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split, the, uh, split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waves. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. Do you remember in the book of Genesis about God saying that someone will come and crush the head of the serpent? And then do you read, do you remember reading in, in the book of Revelation about the seven heads of the red dragon? So this is a chaos monster, arrogant and proud, who inhabits the depths of the sea. And we know that in the Old Testament, the sea was a place of chaos. Uh, it was a symbol of everything that was dark and rebellious and things that stood opposed to God. No one goes down to the beach to frolic in the waves on a Sunday afternoon after church. No, no. You, you, no. Back then, you would stay away from the ocean. Fishermen would go out, and they would be mad to do so. The Phoenicians who, who, who sailed across the Mediterranean were considered madmen to sail out, out of the view of land because they're sailing into chaos, into the realm where God has no control, apparently. Right, so this is, this is the dominion where this creature exercises his rule. And then, in Isaiah 27... We've got the same symbol used to depict evil rulers who, who will threaten God's people with captivity, and uh, just as Pharaoh did. And God then promises to deliver his people from this monstrous creature. It says this in, in Isaiah 27 verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. Now, if you read that in the English Standard Version, the ESV Version, it, will, it says, He will slay the dragon of the sea. With all of that, does this sound like a crocodile? Does this sound like a dinosaur? 
Who is it then that stands so impeccably opposed to God's rule, bringing death, bringing chaos, bringing destruction in his wake? Who is the enemy of God's people who is looking to devour and destroy? And I think surely by now you must have the answer. But a reminder again of the Leviathan in Job chapter 41 that we read. His snorting throws out flashes of light, his eyes like rays of the dawn, fire brands come from his mouth, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. You've got to wonder where then did the idea of a fire-breathing dragon ever come from? And you've got to wonder, did it come from here? In fact, here's something interesting. In the days of Jesus, the Greeks, they were a very spiritual uh, nation, and there was a longing and a desire to understand the religions of all the nations of the world. And so the Greeks translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so that they could read the Old Testament in their own language. And the, it's called the Septuagint, a translation. And Job 41, when talking about the Leviathan at this point, the Septuagint uses the word Draco, which has got nothing to do with Harry Potter. <laughs> um, we're not suggesting that Draco is um, Draco Malfoy is the Leviathan, but it's the Greek word for dragon. And so Leviathan at, at this point then ends up with all these supernatural connotations. And then, of course, the connection to the New Testament and connection to Revelation 12, where we read the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent, the Nahash, called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. So you see the connection between Rahab, uh, Leviathan, the serpent, the dragon, the devil, the Satan, all the same. And so what we see God doing here with Job is, as, as he gives us this very graphic description of this wicked preacher, creature that's loose in the world, he's, he's really saying to Job, Job, you know what, way back in chapter, I don't know, chapter 9 or wherever it was, you, you were right, Job, you were looking at the chaos in society, you're looking at the chaos in your life, and you were saying, if God's not doing this, who is? And, and, and God effectively says, there is another who, there is someone else doing it, not a second God, not someone uh, who can challenge God in any way, but there is another supernatural being who is working in this wicked way. The accuser is at work. This is the monster who effectively appears again and again in your life, Job. This is the one behind the bandits who attacked your farm. This is the one behind the sores and illness all over your body. This is the one who is behind your wife walking away from you. This is the one who's behind the storms that, that killed your kids. This is the one who's come in the disguise of your friends who kicked you while you're down, who've given you lies and half-truths since the very start of this. And so what God's doing is unmasking Satan. Not in a straightforward way, but... Um, but by using this very evocative imagery and this stuff of legend to understand the terror of the dragon. Can you understand what's after you, Job? Can you get the sense of the danger you're in? Now, I want to make three very quick points about the nature or about the dragon from Job 41 this morning. Number one, you can't tame the dragon. You can't ride the dragon, right? How to ride a dragon? Nice Hollywood movie, 
You can't, right? Despite what Hollywood says, you can't tame a dragon, and you certainly can't ride one, and you certainly wouldn't want to try and ride this one. Don't you love those opening verses in chapter 41 where God says, Hey, Job, I've got this dragon. Do you want to try and go and catch it? Wrap a, wrap a noose around it? Speak gentle words to it? See if it'll speak gentle words back to you? And then turn it into a pet. I know what, Job. Put it on a leash and give it to your little girls and let your girls go and take it for a walk, right? You can't do that with a dragon. You don't give a dragon to your little bull. Is it not a dragon like this? But the point is, of course, that many people do. We think that we can tame evil. We think that we can be in control of just a little bit of our badness. It won't hurt. It's kind of a, a repeat of, of last week of, of the snake in the garden, the serpent in the garden, who says to Eve, you won't surely die. You'll be okay. And we're like, we'll take a dragon. It'll be all right. It won't hurt us. Uh, my kids have been house-sitting for the parents this week. Uh, they've gone, the parents have gone off to a farm somewhere and they've left Fred, I think it's Fred, maybe it's Frank, I don't know. They've left Fred or Frank in the care of my children. Um, Fred is a python and the python lives in a glass cage and that's where he should stay. He's a sweet guy and doesn't move about much. I think Kevin said he's taken him out to the grass for a little bit of a run around the other day. But, but there's just something about a snake, right? <laughs> Listen to this story. I'm, I'm smiling, but actually it's quite, it's quite sad. Daniel Brandon, this is uh, straight out of a newspaper in the UK. Daniel Brandon, 31, died from asphyxiation at his home near Basingstoke, Hampshire, 25th of August, 2018. One of his pets, a female African rock python called Tiny, was found near his body out of its cage. The coroner says there's no doubt Mr. Brandon died as a result of contact with Tiny, and he recorded a verdict of misadventure. Mr. Brandon has kept snakes for 16 years. Tiny was one of 10 snakes and 12 tarantulas that he kept in his room at the family home. His mother, Barbara, had said that her son had owned Tiny since it was small enough to fit in his hand. She, she says that he never felt threatened by Tiny, and was as aware of how strong Tiny was, but she says there were occasions when she would walk into the room and Tiny would strike out at her. She told the court on the night of her son's death, she heard a bang coming from his room, assumed it was a, something that had been knocked over. It turns out that it was her son that had fallen over. She later discovered Mr. Brandon unconscious in his bedroom with a snake coiled under a cabinet. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't keep a python as a pet, um, but... It's kind of the story of, of Job 41, isn't it? The danger of keeping a dragon and thinking you can control it. Here's the lyrics of a, a song. My pet, my pet, how fun you are. I trust you so much, I even leave the cage door ajar. You'll never harm me, but just to be safe, I admire you from afar. And the chorus goes, the coiling is fast, this time it's your last. Your soul asphyxiated. Final chance for escape is terminated. Enveloped by python. Constriction complete. So harmless. Me the master, you the slave. I reach out to touch you. I'm getting so brave. You affect me but little. I still haven't changed. And to those who find me abrasive, it's you that's deranged.
and dreams become nightmares of total defeat. Not just a white line or an addiction of some kind, but entanglement with anger or bitterness bind. You get the sense of the song, right? It's nice to say, oh, that's nice from a distance. But man, we mess around with our sin, don't we? We think often that just a little bit of sin will be okay, that I can control this, that I'm the master, that you're the slave, just like Job says, or God says to Job, you know, can you make Leviathan your slave? I can control this. But we don't, we can't, and God's pointing out to Job the folly of that kind of thinking. Let the devil in a little, and you think you can control him? You think you can control his rage and his destruction and his voracious appetite that we've just read about in chapter 41 here? You think you can control him? He'll swallow you whole. And yet how many of us ignore this warning and think, no, I can train my dragon. I can master my demons. I can learn to ride it without harming myself or others. Only to find that your drinking becomes a little bit more out of control than it was last year. And that you're alienating your family. And you say, oh, but I've, I've got it under control. But it's actually controlling you. And I'd say, well, if you've got it under control, then stop. Then stop for a week. Stop for a month. And if you say, oh, I could if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Then I'd have to say, I wonder if the dragon's controlling you. Or your temper. Or your lust. You think you've got that under control and it's all fine. Or your self-pity that you wallow in for a little while, but you'll get out of it. You'll just, but you like to wallow now and then because, I don't know why, because, and you find you're stuck in the mud and the deeper you sink, you're no longer riding the dragon. The dragon is riding you. You can't ride your dragon. Secondly, what about the pride of the dragon? Did you notice the very last verse, right? He looks down on the haughty because he is king of the proud. Isaiah implies that pride was the very first sin of the dragon, where he set his mind to rule above God. I will be beyond God. And so this incredible beast is king over all the sons of pride. He teaches men how to, this is how, uh, this is how a preacher called Ray Steadman puts this. He says, um, he teaches men how to act in pride and independence and self-sufficiency. He works it into a vast system of control, lays over all industry, labor, government, art and music, social and economic intercourse of every kind, works it all together so it rises up against God and his power and his might. The dragon is proud, proud at heart and seeks to usurp and overthrow the rule of God. He inspires pride and arrogance in his human subjects and would see them rise up and usurp the place of God as well. Is it not what he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden? You will be like God. <laughs> you will be your own God. Self-sufficient, self-ruling, self-determining, in pride, throw off the shackles. Psalm 2 says it wonderfully. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against God. Let's throw off his fetters. He shall not rule us. Any God but this God. And God in heaven laughs and says, kiss the son. That's his advice. Humble yourself and kiss the son. And this pride of the dragon sneaks into the church because we're not just talking about evil, demon-possessed people out in the world around us, but we find it in church too. We're all pride-filled creatures. 
And the Bible constantly warns us of the dangers of pride and arrogance, warned of the dangers of setting ourselves up in the place of God and making our own rules and our own determinations. Because in doing so, we simply mimic the dragon. Thirdly, so you can't ride your dragon, beware the pride of the dragon. And then thirdly, I couldn't find a rhyme for it, sorry, but the rule of God. Because buried in the middle of this chapter of fear and terror and this dark beast that, that's on the loose and out to capture us, we find God saying to Job, if you can't fight the dragon, do you think you can stand up against me? And then God says this, because everything under heaven belongs to me. You know what God's saying in that? He's saying, I control Leviathan. I control the dragon. He sets himself up to rule and look down over the kings of men. And guess what? I sit in judgment over him. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, yes, there is a dragon. Well, sorry, yes, there is a devil, but he is God's devil. <laughs> Would you put this guy on a leash for your kids to take for a walk? No, but God has him on a leash. And his power is limited. And we might say every now and again, not limited enough. But his power is nevertheless limited by God. And so God says to Job, listen, when you come face to face with evil, recognize how very frightening it is. You can't even begin to deal with the problem of evil and the root cause of evil. But I can, says the Lord. That's the whole point, right? I made him. I'll crush him. I'll tame him. I'll crush his head. Listen to this from, from one other commentator. He says, as Job suffers, his greatest fear is that the monster who attacks him is unrestrained and that the attacks will go on forever with unrelieved ferocity. That there is no sovereign God who has evil on a leash. But there is. And when Job grasps that in the next chapter, he is filled with awe. God rules. He has conquered the dragon. He's given him a nasty head wound. He's put him on display. He has bound him up. And you know how he did that, right? He came. The dragon slayer came. But he came in humility, not pride. He came to a stable and to a teenager on the edge of the empire, not to a palace and a princess at the very heart of the world. And in humility, Dragon Slayer was bound, put on a leash, and dragged off to the cross. And there he was put on display for the world to see. And the dragon, Leviathan, shouted out, Here is your Dragon Slayer, dead and buried. And it looked like Leviathan has won. In Job, he's limited. He's not allowed to bring any physical harm to Job. He's not allowed to actually kill. But now the rules are lifted. And when Jesus comes, Leviathan doesn't stop with just a few um, nasty sores on the body. He kills the dragon slayer. But we know how the story ends, don't we? He rose 
and rising he's trampled the dragon leviathan the quailing serpent the nahash under his foot and in death he conquered death and in doing that he sets us free we are no longer slaves to the dragon we are no longer slaves to his pride and to his wounds we are sons and daughters of the dragon slayer who has set us free and nothing that leviathan does anymore can overcome his power i don't know where you're aware of leviathan at work in your life is it in areas of sickness is it in things that have been taken from you are you concerned with the greater moral problem of evil in the world why do bad things happen behind it all there is this dark creature but he is a defeated enemy a defeated foe his head has been crushed he is waiting for the final blow to fall when one day he will be cast into the lake but his time is up his death is certain the dragon slayer has already won let's pray oh jesus we thank you that you have come in humility to us that you came as a child in a manger not in pride to rule but in humility to defeat our greatest enemy and to set us free. Lord, for those this morning who feel the, the mounting, um, I don't know, pressure of the dragon, may we be reminded and be made very aware again that he is a defeated enemy, that you have set us free from his power. Amen. Amen, everyone. We will hopefully see you in ten, nine days' time. I'm counting. Nine and a half, eight. I don't know. We'll see you soon. God bless.